You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are finishing our series on the Gospel of John today. And um, over the course of like eight weeks prior to this, going through this gospel, we looked at different individuals and their struggles with who they were. And we have found the mistake it is to try to make your identity based on your moral track record or on your religious rule keeping or on even your sincerity and authenticity or anything on yourself, your ethnicity, your class. Today, we're going to finish, I think, It all heads in this direction. We're finishing with the identity of someone in this gospel that's only not even named. And yet it's the author of the gospel. And he's only known by this, the one whom Jesus loved. Is that fascinating? It's intentional. It's intentional. Now, most Christian scholars do believe this is the gospel of John. And so this is John, who is the one who's called the one whom Jesus loved or the beloved disciple. However, it's not in the text. It's the fact that early church fathers in the second century uh, decided or looked at all the evidence and said, yes, this was the apostle John who wrote this book and wrote letters, first, second, and third John, etc. But there are other scholars who look at the information within the text itself and have thought maybe the author is Lazarus. Because it's in chapter 11 that this phrase first comes up at the grave of Lazarus where Jesus is weeping and the person, they say, my, how he loved him. It's the first person in this entire gospel. And it's after that that the phrase comes up again and again in the last chapters of the gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, regardless, I don't really care who the author is in one sense, right? But what I love is this is all we know. The one whom Jesus loved, that's the identity, and you can't have a better one than that. You cannot have a better identity than that. The one whom Jesus loved. So we're going to conclude the gospel, actually read the last few verses of the gospel today. It um, continues from last week when we looked at Peter and how Jesus called him three times for the three times he denied Jesus. And now after that, Jesus calls Peter to follow him. And we read the rest of uh, the letter of John, uh, John chapter 21, starting at verse 20. And you can follow along, by the way, in the U version of the Bible app. There are notes, right? You've got them up already, girl. That's great. Okay, here we go. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and has said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, What about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would 
be written. And so ends the Gospel of John. And from this text, we're going to learn these three things. Um, what it means to be seeking your identity through comparisons, which we all fall into. Secondly, what it means to be the beloved. And thirdly, how we then bear witness. But first of all, seeking identity through comparisons. That's what Peter's doing here in this text. Jesus has just told him by the method he was going to die, as we found in the last text, that you're going to basically be crucified someday. And he had just installed him, reinstated him, recalled him to be his disciple. But then Peter turns around and says, what about this guy? You know, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus responds, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. How easy it is for us to go, like, what about? Well, what, why is that happening? What, but but uh, it, how, right? Maybe it starts with sibling rivalry. I can still remember a time when I was a child, or two times, or five times, or 20 times. My brother and I were two years apart. And my parents decided to get us the same exact gift at Christmas, a BB gun, kind of like the Red Rider one, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I had to wait until I was in like sixth grade to get that. And so then my brother was only in fourth grade to get that. And I thought, what is going on? What about? Who's the older one? I'm the older one. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm the middle kid. Yeah. So. Comparing ourselves to other, um, man, I wrote, uh, read uh, recently an article by Will Store in The Observer, August 29, 2021. It is worthy to read the whole article. And he basically says this, what about comparisonism is all about status. And he writes this, <clears throat> life is a game. To understand this is to understand why the human world can be so maddening, angry, and irrational. It's a pretty long quote here, but I think you'll see why it's so, so good. No matter where you might travel from the pre-modern societies of Papua New Guinea to the skyscraper forests of Tokyo and Manhattan, you'll find it. Humans forming groups and playing for status. In the developed world, we play political games, religious games, corporate games, sports games, cult games, legal games, fashion games, hobby games, video games, charity games, social media games, racial, gender, and nationalist games. The variety feels infinite. Within these groups, we strive for individual status for acclaim from our co-players. But our groups also compete with rival groups in status contests. Corporation battles corporation. Football teams battle football teams. When our teams win status, we do too. When they lose, so do we. These games form our identity. Hmm. We become the games we play. They're built into our brains, part of how we experience reality. It's simply not possible to opt out of it, but we can decide which games we choose to play. Humans he goes on, are extraordinarily imaginary creatures who use almost anything to symbolize status, money, Twitter followers, literary tastes, power, the brand of a watch, or the shape of a stomach. Get this one. In 1948, the anthropologist William Bascom published an account of a status game on the Micronesian island of Pompeii that was played with yams. The man with the largest yam at a feast would be declared number one and praised by the chief for his generosity. The men of Pompeii would furiously compete with this, for this position, raising about 50 yams a year in secret, remote, overgrown plots that they'd creep out of bed at 2 in the morning to tend to. 
A single yam could take 10 years to grow, reach more than four meters in length, weigh over 90 kilograms, and require 12 men to carry it into the feast using a stretcher. <laughs> Just as yam growing gave the men of Pompeii access to status game and its precious rewards of connection and acclaim, so belief allows access to the games of religion, politics, cults, and conspiracy. The more fervently you believe, the higher you rise. And here we see Peter is playing a game. What about? What about me compared to? Always in competition, aren't we, with status, approval, acceptance, attendance, honor. Maybe it starts in the family, like I said, with sibling rivalry. I saw it in my own. But it keeps going at the playground, the battlefield, the dance floor, the classroom. It ends up with the degrees behind our name, the incomes that we have, the symbols of status in the cars that we drive, and the labels we wear. All the different identities that we've discussed throughout this time in the last eight weeks prior to this one are all really about status. Nicodemus came and he had high status and he was wondering about Jesus. The Samaritan woman, about the lowest of status you could get. Nathaniel questioned Jesus' status. How could anything good come from Nazareth? Mary Magdalene, being a woman who had previously uh, been a demoniac, pretty low status. And Peter himself lost his whole status because of his betrayal denials and was wondering if that could ever be recovered. It's all about status. And let me tell you, if we could just get over, quote, the status game, so many of our problems in society would be gone. The tribalism, the politicization of truth claims, the corporate competition, the relentless pursuit of more. They're all different ways of saying, my yam is bigger than your yam. <laughs> Isn't that? It's just the same thing. What? It's amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? My yam is bigger than your yam. <laughs> and your yam is never big enough. Henry Nouwen, I love, uh, he's got some great books. One is on The Beloved, which is where I'm quoting a couple of things from because it so fits in with our text. He sees the status seeking that we're doing. And what we're trying to find is this enoughness and completeness. And finally, I've arrivedness, which we never get to. And he writes this, aren't you like me hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along to give you that final feeling of inner meaning, inner well-being, or desire? But as long as you are waiting for that mysterious moment, you will be go on running helter-skelter, always anxious and restless, always lustful and angry, never fully satisfied. You know that this is the compulsiveness that keeps us going and busy, but at the same time makes us wonder whether we're getting anywhere in the long run. Mm. You know, I think COVID and this whole last 18 months or more have really stripped away um, and exposed a lot of the status games that we've been playing. And they're not working. And we're also feeling dissatisfied. And it's not, we don't have the same kind of, and we're wondering what's going on. But why? Partly, too, because we've lost a lot of the human connection, not just over the last year. We just never had it. 
because we were all focused on something else. Rather than our relationships, rather than our relationship with God or others, rather than serving, we were focused on all this other stuff that was taken away, at least for a time, and then we're like, oh, we got to get back to that. And I hope we don't go back to all of that. When we're seeking status, comparing ourselves to others, well, it is a rat race, isn't it? But we don't make good rats. <laughs> and Jesus basically says, why are you doing that? You follow me. He says that to Peter, and I'm glad he says it to Peter. I'm glad Peter shows us the same thing. You follow me. Because the only place I'm going to find my true sense of self, of worth, of identity, of grounding, of lovableness, ultimately is in Jesus and in him alone. I will never gain my, my security or my identity through any of the status games we're all playing or any of the victories I might have in life. I will only find it in what the words of this text say, the one whom Jesus loved in being beloved, period. So what does it mean to being the beloved? I love the fact that this is the only description we really have, that John, if he wrote this letter, didn't say, hey, it's John, you know, because that wasn't his main identity. And it wasn't like he was someone different than others and like, Jesus loves me more than you. He was not doing the comparison game. It's just the fact that he said, it's the one whom Jesus loved. And he realized so fully and completely that that's all his status, his standing before God and in this world, his worth, his value meant. That's why Henry Nouwen says, being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. So this belovedness, the fact that you could say, I am the one whom Jesus loved, any of us can say that. And I think that's deliberate. That's why it's written this way in this gospel. Now, I'll tell you, it says, do you realize the one whom Jesus loved? It doesn't say the one who loved Jesus. That's important. It's very important because I don't know about you. I've been in the church a long time. And I don't care what church I've been in, I have seen status games, okay? I've seen this, well, I love Jesus more than you. In fact, I remember, <laughs> I've been to a few Christian concerts, and when I was in high school and in college, they were even cheering, we love Jesus, yes, we do, we love Jesus more than you. And I'm thinking, what the, what is this about? And then the other crowd, no, we love him more, we, you know, it's like, what? This is like high school basketball games where we had those types of cheers. What is it doing in a Christian context? I have no idea. But we have those kind of games of where my yam is bigger than your yam. My church is bigger than your church. I'm more spiritual than you are. I'm more gifted. I'm more special. Look at how giving I am. Look at how pious I am. Look at how much more I am. Oh, give me a break, right? As if, and you know what we're doing when we're playing that game, is we somehow are denying the fact that we are loved by God because we are loved by God. And we think that we're loved by God because of how lovable we are. <laughs> you aren't. <laughs> okay? You aren't. 
And I don't say that just because, because I don't know all of you that well, okay? I know myself. I'm not that lovable. Um, but I'm saying it because the, um, the scriptures say it. <laughs> Pretty bluntly. Paul um, says it in Romans. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for whom? The ungodly. Not the godly. Not the great. Not the lovable. Not the pious. Not the goody two-shoes types. The ungodly. The ones without God. The ones against God. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize that says your lovableness is not about how lovable you are? It is about how loving God is and the great cost he paid for it. The fact that to be lovable, well, to love us, cost him dearly. He had to take in and be open to our rejection and our hatred and our agony and our condemnation. And that's what makes his love even more amazing. There's nothing you can do to stop him from loving you or to make you love or to get you to, for him to love you more. You are the beloved in whom his favor rests. He's pleased with you. He's so thrilled who have you. No different than the Apostle John, who, by the way, was not always that great. <laughs> he was called the son of thunder, along with James, because he wanted to you know, bring down fire and brimstone on the Samaritans. And um, he was the one that wanted to sit at, you know, was playing the game of who's at the right and who's at the left, who's number one and who's number two. That wasn't a lovable action at all. And yet he comes in this gospel down to understanding I'm the one whom Jesus loves. Can you, can you say that with me today? I am the one who leads Jesus. Let's do it again, because I kind of messed it up, right? <laughs> I am the one whom Jesus loves. That is your identity. When he had every reason not to love you, to maybe just tolerate us, Jesus doesn't want to stand at a distance. He wants to come so close, no one could come closer. And he brings us into his own state of, this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. His own status as the son of the father who is perfectly obedient is the status that Jesus passes on to us so that we are welcomed into the father's embrace, into the spirit's joy simply to be part of that community, a fellowship. That's what we look forward to. And what results in this for the uh, beloved disciple here is that he starts to bear witness, our third point. It says in John 21, 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now, the verb here, to bear witness, you might kind of like this Greek verb. It's called martureo, which is where we get the word martyr from. A martyr is just someone who bears witness, someone who just says, hey, this happened. You might be an eyewitness um, to an accident or an incident. All you're doing is sharing what you saw what you see, and that's what we are to do. We just share what we've seen and what we've experienced in the love of God and Jesus Christ. 
And when the whole status is about being beloved, what's fascinating about this is that Christianity is not now a comparison game. And any time it becomes that in any church, you know something's wrong. Somehow we're believing something other than God's grace. Henry Nouwen says, to be chosen as the beloved of God is something radically different, and I would say, than the games the world plays. Instead of excluding others, it includes others. Instead of rejecting others as less valuable, it accepts others in their own uniqueness. It is not a competitive, but a compassionate choice. This is the way, this is the game we get to play, to love everyone, to forgive sinners, to pray for even those who might be against us. This is, quote, the game, if any is. So we don't turn Christianity into a club with membership rules, but into a fellowship that welcomes sinners who are saved by grace. We witness to the amazing grace of Jesus Christ and the one who ate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and healed lepers and spoke with all different races and backgrounds and saw in each their belovedness, who loved them. You know, when the book of Acts begins, right after the uh, giving of the Holy Spirit, you find that the community that developed was one where each sacrificed and loved on each other, who uh, gave witness to who Jesus Christ was, who sacrificially poured out financial blessings and um, spent time together, celebrated together, were filled with joy together, and everyone had enough because everyone was beloved. That's why N.T. Wright uh, penned these words about the church. He said, the church was the original multicultural project with Jesus as its only point of identity. It was known and was for this reason seen both attractive and dangerous. As a worship-based, spiritually renewed, multi-ethnic, mutually supportive, outward-facing, culturally creative, chastity-celebrating, socially responsible kinship group, gender-blind in leadership, generous to the poor, and courageous in speaking up for the voiceless. Wow. That's what we are. Basically, we're a fellowship of those who are loved. We are known as the beloved. We're not known because we love Jesus so much more than other churches or people. (laughs) Don't play that game. And when we bear that witness of being beloved, we really are unmasking this world and all the games it's playing for status. How manipulative and how controlling and how hungry and how destructive it can be. A world that's always probably trying to question you and say, Are you really sure? You're nobody, really, aren't you? You don't matter, do you? How could you matter? You don't have anything special. And all along, Jesus says, this is the one I love. This is the one who is loved by Jesus. And it changes us every time we understand this message. No wonder I think the, first, the letter of 1 John says, Beloved, 
let us love one another. And he uses the word beloved to start with because that is the source, the power, the status that you have in order to love one another. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for this series that we've gone through about identity. What we, Lord, what I'm hoping for more than anything through this entire series is we discover who we are because of whose we are. We discover the fact that you have given us the honor, the status of being sons and daughters, welcomed into a family that we have, when we betrayed you, we walked away from you, and we've rejected, Lord, you still loved us, you forgave us, you came to us, you broke through, Lord. Even when you were broken upon the cross, Lord, when you died and rose, you started a whole new life for us, and you gave us the status that you yourself, Lord Jesus, had with the Father. We are amazed that we are those whom you love. Help us to become such a fellowship and in all our relationships, Lord, and, um, and especially, Lord, with people who may be a little more um, difficult in our lives, Lord, who don't understand, um, who, have, uh, who are trying to play games or who are trying to grab onto things to feel, quote, um, something more, who are competitive with others, who may even um, down, you know, diss other people and disrespect and, and lash out, Lord, that we just show that you love. You have beloved us. We are beloved, and they are too, Lord. Help us to show your grace in these ways and to be such a witness to something other than the games that are being played in this world. We lift up to you this week, um, Bill, who will be undergoing um, a procedure, Lord, heart catheterization um, this Wednesday. We pray your healing be upon him before and after. Bless him, Lord, and all that he does. We lift up to you, Lord, the family and loved ones of Chris Melling, a friend of mine who passed away from COVID in New Orleans. And pray that you'd be with his wife, Stacy, and his three kids. Lord, truly guard and keep them in your care. We lift up to you, O Lord, uh, um, the needs in this community. You know them. You know the thousand or two thousand foster children in these five counties and the struggles they've gone through. We pray, Lord, that you would um, use us to bless them in such a way that they may understand, though others have not been able to be there for them in one form or another, Lord, that you see them as your beloved, the ones you want to love on. Love on them through us. We lift up to you, O Lord, um, the 17 missionaries in Haiti reported today being kidnapped by gangs. We pray, Lord, that you protect them, that you would also be with our um, field director for Mission Haiti, Lafon. Keep him safe. We pray, Lord God, that you're somehow with all the chaos and the turmoil in that country, Lord, we know that there are many beloved disciples there, many with strong faith in the midst of such difficulty and suffering and injustice going on, Lord. We pray, Lord, for some stability. We pray, Lord, for the protection of these missionaries and, Lord, that life in general is valued there. We pray that you would thwart the evil that is seen in these gangs and others. We pray, Lord, that you do what you can do 
and that we, Lord, here as well as across the world who, um, Lord, um, our brothers and sisters with the churches and Christians in Haiti, Lord, that we show you glory by how we serve one another and love one another. Lord God, as we uh, prepare for our congregational meeting today, we pray for your wisdom and guidance, that the conversations uh, be filled with, um, with your presence, your, um, your spirit, that we would be led by you. And bless us, Lord, as we um, will be uh, offering ourselves, as we offer our, our financial gifts for your kingdom's sake in just a few moments. We pray for those who are online that they too may feel a part of our fellowship and that this day we can celebrate together. And Lord, for those who are present here, as we gather around your table and receive your love, how you've given us your very self, that you would commune with us, Lord God. We pray that you would work through this so that we'd understand more so how we are the ones whom you love. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.